My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Mixed orientation marriage. Have you heard this term? It's basically what it sounds like, a marriage or maybe a long-term romantic partnership between partners of different sexual orientations. Most often, one partner is bisexual, gay, or lesbian, and the other is heterosexual. Sometimes one partner is lesbian or gay, and the other is bisexual. And in other pairings, one person is asexual or fluid, or the partners simply have very different sexual interests. Some couples with differences in sexual orientations or interests, it works out really well. Today, you're going to hear about a not-so-great scenario that's also pretty common. You'll also learn more about the effects of purity culture that we've been talking about as far as sex and relationships go, what cults and different religious teachings can have that kind of impact on sexuality, and with Dr. Megan Fleming's help about a disorder that causes unrelenting, spontaneous, and uncontainable genital arousal in people with vulvas primarily. Hint, it may sound kind of lovely, but it's not. If you have it, though, there is so much reason to have hope. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. Before we dive in, a gigantic sponsor shout-out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to shop for sex toys, lube, and all kinds of fun goodies. Through April 28th, you can save 15% on all G-Spot vibes. Visit thepleasurechest.com to learn more or start shopping. And for more Girl Boner fun, be sure to sign up for Occasional Extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. I send emails about once a month, including giveaways such as Girl Boner pens I'm about to give out, news about Girl Boner events, and more. On my site, you can also learn more about or order my latest books, Girl Boner and Girl Boner Journal. And if you read either one or both, I would love to hear what you think by way of an Amazon review. You can also listen to and review the main Girl Boner book on Audible. And if you're new to Audible, you can sign up for a free trial and get the book for free, too. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Aideen T. Finola. She's an unapologetic and empowered survivor of physical, emotional, psychological, and religious abuse who now thrives. She was raised by abusive parents who were zealous members of a religious cult and spent the second two decades of her life married to a closeted gay man who was also sadly abusive. Today, she is a practicing Martha Beck-trained life coach, public speaker, and author. She coaches and speaks all over the world, teaching others how to reclaim their lives by transmuting their pain into empowerment. She specializes in coaching straight spouses, ex-evangelicals, and cult survivors. Her book, My Exquisite Purple Life, Insights from a Woman Who Never Should Have Made It But Did, details the insights she has gained on her own healing journey to reclaim her life. Aideen, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. 
I'm so fascinated by your journey. And I have to say, when I met you today in person, I had such a sense of radiance. You are a light. And I don't think that people would guess upon <laughs> meeting you that you've been through a lot. Yeah, you know, it's funny because as an author, I'm always promoting my book. And sometimes it's in the strangest of places, like going through the security line at an airport. And I will hand them my card and I always say to them, just go read the synopsis on the back. And at the very least, you will think to yourself, wow, and she seemed so normal. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that you have a sense of humor about that, too. You're like, yeah, I get it. At what point did you realize that you had been in a cult? Because I feel like if you're in one, people aren't saying, hey, welcome to the cults. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a sales pitch that really gets anyone in the door. Um, So my parents joined when I was eight. And I left when I was in my early 20s, like around 22, 23, because you don't leave in one day, you know, it takes a little bit. And um, so that was my normal. I knew nothing else. And interestingly enough, I don't think that I identified it as a cult until I had left. So I didn't leave because I one day thought, oh, my gosh, whoops, I'm in a cult. I probably shouldn't be in a cult, you know. I just didn't know. What I did know was that it didn't work for me. Ah. So that was the thing was that, oh, and I tried hard. <laughs> I put To make least, it work for you? Yeah. I put at least a decade from my very early adolescence when I had a brief moment of rebellion and then into my early 20s for that decade, I gave it everything I had and I followed all the rules and tried to, you know, I embraced all the teachings and everything. And I did it. I did it. I would say mostly out of primal fear because there was that threat of losing my parents' approval. But um, that's like the primitive level of it. But intellectually, I was agreeing with it or doing it because I believed them that I would experience a better life mm-hmm. if I if I did what they said and I believed the truth as they presented it, then, of course, I was supposed to have a much more. I mean, we were told, you know, God blesses his faithful and we were the most faithful. And so and uh, to say that that it didn't deliver on that promise is just like such an understatement. <laughs> so that was what prompted me to leave. What were the first signs looking back once you did realize whoa, that was a cult. Yeah. What were some of the main things that stand out to you as red flags? Um, again, it's hard to separate because at the time it was my entire world. I do remember having this awareness that it wasn't appropriate for my parents as adults to be deferring so much to someone else. I mean, they they allowed the cult leaders to make decisions for them and or followed their teachings in their own decision making in everything. The clothing that they wore, the house that they bought, the you know, the job that my father had. I mean it everything. And it there yeah, there was a lot of voyeurism and there was a ridiculous amount of control. And so I, I somehow 
I had an awareness that that wasn't appropriate, that that adults should have more autonomy and responsibility for their lives. Again, also, I left, you know, having left because it was just like, this just does not work for me. And for me, it was trying to squish myself, the, the bigness of who I am into this tiny, tight little spot. Um, and so I left like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I don't know anything other than this. I just know that this doesn't work. And then, you know, but I do remember there, we didn't have Google back then. <laughs> My Google was a set of, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> but probably I would have gone to the library or something and looked up the qualities of a cult. So at some point in the one to two to three years after I left, I, I remember crossing paths with like a list of 10 or 12, you know, you know, you're a cult if, you know, <laughs> and you're like, huh, memory you know, it's lane. Like, it's like, if you do, if this group is this way, you and what might, were some of the things? So obviously control, right? Mm -hmm. And a sense of being dependent on them and this promise, right, right that that you would be rewarded. What yeah. about? From a sex and gender standpoint, what were some of those items on the list? Oh, yeah. All of those classic hallmarks that you think of, like um, we had purity culture before it was called purity culture and before, you know, people were making all kinds of money off of purity rings and promise plaques and all the rest of that. Um, gender roles were very, very rigid, very strict. There were two genders and we know which one was the better one. So, mm. you know, and men were to lead and women were to submit and follow. Um, in terms of sexuality, the godly woman was asexual, was um, and not in a good like not, not as an orientation, right? And not as an orientation, and not in any kind of normalized way, right? So it was actually very um, aberrant or distorted because you have people who the majority of us did have a a, a very full. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I had a very full expression of my sexuality and my sex drive. And yet I was told that if I were a godly woman, which was something I never mastered, but if I were a godly woman, then I would not have any sex drive whatsoever. Like, Which is so crazy because zero. obviously they expect when you get married, right? Because mm -hmm. it's also very heteronormative. So yes. you're expected to marry a man. There's no question that you're both straight. Like that's just right. a presumption. And they're expecting you to procreate. Mm -hmm. Like oh, that's gosh, also yes. a for sure. That's what my body was for. Which requires sex. So they thought, mm -hmm. what? Like automatic. Did you learn anything about what would happen once you did have sex? Were there any messaging? Did you, what did you feel learning about marital sex? Um, so we were taught that sex was primarily and really only for the purpose of procreation, that men experienced pleasure in sex, but that actually was quite unfortunate for them because they were so um, at the mercy of their uh, sex drive. So I was taught that men were these lustful beasts that, you know, could really could barely can like if I like the fact that I saw men controlling themselves was some miracle of, you know, and they were um, basically like shackled and 
um, burdened by their sex drive that was like um, a cross to bear and a curse. And women, of course, did not want sex and we and we didn't enjoy sex either. There was never any discussion in the cult about orgasm or anything like that for women. And women were supposed to, but the thing was, because men were saddled with this, you know, really onerous sex drive, we had to accommodate them and we were serving our husbands. And although they were sure that we wouldn't enjoy it, we had to do it anyway because that was our wifely duty, et cetera. Wow. It's so interesting because according to these kinds of teachings, sex is a natural, natural act at some point. In certain scenarios, and yet, why would anyone create two genders that are supposed to be together and one has uncontrollable lust and the other one doesn't want any sex? Right. That doesn't make sense from a practical standpoint or evolutionary or any of that. And one thing that I've noticed in the discussions around purity culture is this idea that you touched on a bit, which is that women are to be they are the ones who can control the man's sex drive. Like they have to hide certain things because otherwise, like they just can't help it. We're responsible for their sexual purity. So did you have any, were you allowed to date? Did you have any sort of, no, nothing? No, no, because dating was so, because of the sex, the way we're taught about sex and sex is only for procreation, it has to occur within marriage. And then you've got these poor unfortunate men who are foaming at the mouth. And and so it was like you couldn't let anyone date because they'll probably end up having sex and sex is only supposed to be in, in marriage. Ergo, 15-year-olds can't date because they're not ready to get married. So – and we don't want them to be having sex and whatever. So, yeah, so I was 21 years old when I went on my first date. So it was – I was 21 when I first held hands with a guy kissed a guy and I did it all with one man and I married him 18 months after hi it's nice to meet you and I remember this is um was just about a month ago a friend of mine introduced me to a new animated series called Big Mouth are you familiar with that I'm not and I'm sorry because I wasn't familiar with it so I don't know like can't tell you much more than that but there are big names that do the voices of these actors or the, and it's about junior high kids and I remember watching this episode of it was like a first kiss and they had all the butterflies and the this and that and it struck me I was like wow I missed out on that gradual slow mm. I didn't get a chance I I never had the experience where one kiss was enough and it was an end in and of itself and it was a self-contained experience. Because for you it was attached to marriage and procreation? That and also because it was so delayed for me. So my parents like surgically removed my adolescence. So whereas if you have your first kiss when you're 13, 14, 15, that's enough. It's so like exciting, you, right? Yeah, it's like that is a self-contained the biggest experience. Deal. Yeah. yeah, even going with someone, quote unquote. Right. I don't know if they still say that. Yeah. But just sort of you have a love interest and maybe you hold hands or maybe there's like a light kiss or, or a hug. Or dance together a, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and you didn't get that. Yeah, and then there's that gradual incremental change where the kiss 
becomes normalized. And so you're like, oh, let's try a little more. Let's try. So by the time, by the time I cross paths, and you know, it's funny because I rarely do I have uh, warmth in my heart for my ex-husband, which if you read my book, you'll understand why. But um, I do sometimes have to laugh and think how hysterical it was for this poor closeted gay man to end up with this woman that had a decade of sexual energy pent up. So, so here I am at 21. I was so ready to go. I was like, oh, eternal no. damnation be damned. And I think about this poor man who really never wanted to be kissing a woman and certainly did not want to be naked. So or he was not in intimate. denial at all. He knew his gayness but denied it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, and also, I think. The fact that you had learned that men have this ravenous appetite, yes. that must have really created conflict for you. <sighs> to say that fucked with my head is like just such an understatement. And sadly, because I didn't, I wasn't given any realistic education about homosexuality. So I was taught it was a perversion. I was taught it was a sin. I was taught it was a choice. And I was given the impression that no one that I knew was gay, that they were all like out in San Francisco, you know. And of course, now I look back and I know that there I can think of people who I yeah, I would say, you know, of course, I don't know for sure, but they were closeted. And um, so when I was in the first, you know, a couple years, really even the first full decade of my marriage, because I was thinking that I, I just assumed my husband was straight. Why else would he marry a woman? And homosexuality is a choice, right? You know, I was starting throughout my marriage to evolve my understanding of it. And then, but then he didn't want to have sex with me. He didn't want to look at me. From the beginning, was there ever any act or sort of... Only when we were dating. I see. Did he, although he's the reason why we, we remained virgins until our wedding night. I was ready to go all the way, eternal damnation be damned. <laughs> but he, and I thought he was being so noble and Pious. respectful and yeah. pure, you know. And mm. I was like, damn, he's like stronger than me, you know. Oh. And so, but now, of course, I understand, like, he was putting off for as long as he possibly could that which he was deeply dreading, which was having sex with a woman. And so, what impact did that have on you psychologically? How did you internalize that messaging? Yeah. Did you ever talk about it with him? I, you know, I did the, I had the rudimentary tools of psychology at the time and the bits of therapy that I'd been in. So I knew enough to do the I feel when you because I need. But when you are communicating with someone who is is lying to you about something that is that fundamental that you have girl parts and I don't like girl parts you know but um but I'm going to tell you to your face that you know so it, all of those tools become useless so I can say to him, and I did say to him, you know, I feel hurt when you don't want to have sex with me because I desire that level of intimacy with you. And I need for you to initiate or touch me or make love to me. Um, and I'm not being let in on that underlying truth that's being kept from me. That is a complete waste of time. Mm. 
So, yeah, it was very demoralizing. It took me a good decade before it crossed my mind that he could be gay. And it occurred to you before anything came up. Would you tell us about the unfolding? At what point did you start to question that? And then how did you come to find out for sure? Okay, yeah. Um, Well, I... Him being gay was the last explanation that I reached for. Unfortunately, a lot of the first first couple explanations was, I must be too fat. Or, and of course, I weighed like 50, 60 pounds less than I do now. You know, and I'm not fat now. So, um, but I, I must be overweight. Um, I'm a redhead. So I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's because I can't get a tan. Maybe my boobs are too big. I have heard that that shouldn't be a problem, but I don't know, you know. And so then when I finally exhausted, I was like, okay, wait, what if he's gay? And I said that to him when we had been married about a decade. And he responded in a way that is fairly classic for someone who is very in denial and very repressed about their homosexuality. And he had internalized a lot of homophobia. And he immediately shot back to me and he said, what, you think I want to take it up the ass? And I said, I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about where do you feel at home? Where do you, because I, although I probably wouldn't have articulated it like this at that time, I know myself now to be fairly on one end of the spectrum in terms of my heterosexuality. Not that there is, you know, it's not that it's rigid, but I'm very clear on that with myself. And it's not just because I enjoy sexual, physical intimacy with a man. It is because I want to have breakfast with a man. It is because I would like to go couch shopping with a man. It is because I would like to have coffee with a man. Yes, I also want to have sex with a man. But it's also because when I kiss someone, I would like to feel stubble on their face or even better, a beard, <laughs> full beard. <laughs> You're blushing a little bit. Oh my. Yes, I do. I, I do. Category. I have a super beard <laughs> fetish. Which is great for you right now because they're very popular. I know. I'm the <laughs> happiest woman. I just had a conversation with a waiter last night. I made him stop so I could look at his beard in a very, yeah. in a very like awkward way. He was a young guy. And I, I finally just said, listen, you know how most guys feel about tits? That's how I feel about beards. Like, like that's a beautiful beard. I just, can I please admire it? <laughs> did he appreciate it? He definitely yeah. did. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's so interesting that your reaction with your ex-husband talking about this topic was, where do you feel at home? Which I think is a really mm-hmm. beautiful question. And it shows a lot right. of compassion and respect in saying, I'm not judging you for something, I'm saying, I want you to feel at home yeah. and I want to be with someone who feels at home. Yeah. And if and, I'm not your home, yeah, then let's figure that out. Right. We need to talk about this. Yeah, because I don't really want you living with me and quite frankly in me yeah. when we were having sex if I'm not your home. Right. And then his reaction, it sounded very shame-filled to me oh, yeah. that he had this, why can't I stop desiring taking it in the ass, you know, that there was this sort of stereotype around it and this negativity and all of that. 
did you come to a point where there was that kind of honesty and, and him being honest with himself and kind of evolving to a place where you could talk about it in a, a more respectful way for both of you? Um, we had a brief maybe month or two of open dialogue about it. It was interesting because it was around about our 18th wedding anniversary, and we just had a very random conversation Actually, it had to do with our older daughter and some parenting decision that we were talking about. And he offered the perspective of one of his friends that he had confided in a female friend of his. Um, she was also, I think, a colleague. Um, and this woman had offered advice for this particular issue we were dealing with our, with our daughter. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, this woman didn't have children. And also, I didn't know this woman I resented someone, you know, um, imposing into my family life and me raising my kids and stuff. And so I kind of got up in his face and I said, don't you dare. I don't ever want to hear again what your friends think about me, about me as a mother, about my parenting, whatever. I said, I don't want to hear what your friends say about me because I don't tell you what my friends say about you. And at this point, 18 years into our marriage, we really were living very separate lives. And I had already had, and I was also practicing interior design. And I was had quite a few gay and lesbian friends at that time. And they there was a lot of dialogue about my marriage and my husband. And it was the general consensus that there was no doubt that he was gay. And so I said to him, because I don't tell you what my friends say about you. And I left it there. And he said, I can guess what your friends say about me. They say that I'm gay. And I was like, so stunned. You could have knocked me over with a feather. That's the closest he had come to admitting. Yes. And, and the fact that he opened the door on that. And I said, well, yes, they do. And that opened a, literally a three-hour conversation of us sitting on what at that point was my bed, had been our bed, but he was living in a separate room at that time. Um, and we sat on the bed for three hours, mm. uh, strangely not interrupted by either of our daughters, you know, and we talked and that was when I, I mean, we just had such such a huge dialogue and I said to him that was when I learned a lot of information that I had only speculated about about feelings and experiences that he had had even far back as a pre-adolescent and as you know an eight nine ten year old um, but he came from a very religiously repressive he wasn't raised in the same cult but a very religiously repressive his parents caught him having an experience when he was, I think, nine or 10 years old with another boy. And their response was to go out and buy him a Bible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and I said to him at that time, I said, if you are willing to be honest with me, with yourself, and with our daughters, I will stay and give you the best cover any gay man could ever ask for, which really wasn't appropriate and speaks to the place that I was, the kind of still more embryonic place that I was in my own healing and my own um, self-empowerment, because basically I was willingly offering him what he had suckered me into without my knowledge and against my will when we first got married. 
And without giving any space or room for your desires. Yeah. Yeah, for my consent for, yeah, you know, that was something that was very difficult. That was a big piece that was difficult to grapple with in my um, processing through the fact that I had been in a mixed orientation marriage for 20 years was this man literally didn't understand what he was denying me and because he didn't desire a woman. He could not understand why anybody ever would. And he also, therefore, did not understand a woman desiring or being desirous at all. Because if he grew up with repressive messaging, yeah. too, it, yeah. he didn't. He couldn't have known how much it hurt you. And it right. sounds like you even had some disconnect, yes. which is very interesting. And it ties in a little bit to a listener question that I'd like to explore with our resident uh, sex and relationship therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming yeah. of greatlifegreatsex.com. Um, so for anyone who's been listening along here since the beginning or if you read my book, you know that when I first started this work, multiple websites and thesaurus searches for f- the term female sexual arousal drew up persistent sexual arousal syndrome as a top hit, which has changed a little, thank goodness. And I think it's really important to note that we shouldn't only be or primarily be talking about disorders when we talk about female arousal, of course. Also, though, it's very important to recognize that there are disorders and to respect that some people are really struggling. So that disorder, persistent sexual arousal syndrome, since then has been changed, the name, to persistent genital arousal disorder, or PGAD. I recently had an email conversation with two cisgender women who were concerned that they might have this. And in one case, the woman shared that she frequently wakes up very physically aroused or mid-orgasm and wondered if this was a disorder. I'm almost certain that no, it's not. And if you've been listening, also, you might know about sleepgasms, which is what I call them, those nocturnal orgasms. Our bodies get aroused at night, and it's interesting how we don't really learn about, quote, female wet dreams, but they can be so wonderful. They are natural. They are normal. They are embraceable. But if you've had more than you would like for any reason or you want to cut back, I personally think it's important to masturbate more often because when you have that pent-up desire – It's got to go somewhere. And I think that sometimes it comes out in our dreams because we haven't been prioritizing our own pleasure. The other woman who wrote to me, her email was really heart-wrenching. We went back and forth talking about her symptoms, which involved a lot of arousal and urges to experience orgasm without any sexual desire, without any pleasure involved. And I'm certainly not in a position to give any type of diagnosis, of course, but what she described did sound a lot like persistent genital arousal disorder. She's going to seek support from her gynecologist and hopefully a clinical sex therapist, which I'm super grateful for. Whether this is what she's experiencing or not, though, she and I agreed that it's an important topic to share information about. The main symptoms are a series of ongoing, uncomfortable sensations in and around the genital tissues, including the clitoris, labia, vagina, perineum, and anus. And to me, it sounds a lot like having to pee really, really bad, and the urge does not go away. And then you pee, and you still have to pee. It's just not pleasant. You can experience ongoing physical arousal that is completely unlinked with sexual desire, as well as these spontaneous orgasms that can happen very, very frequently. 
All of this can lead to ongoing physical pain, emotional stress, and other emotional challenges and affect people of all ages and primarily people with vulvas. And here's what I find to be the saddest part. According to the Medical News Today report, people with chronic or incurable PGAD might eventually lose their notion of sexual pleasure because orgasms become so tightly linked with relief from pain rather than enjoyment. But of course, when I read that, I was questioning already. Like, we don't know that much about it yet. It's fairly new diagnosis. And I just don't think giving people that kind of lack of hope is ideal. I'm guessing there's got to be a lot of reason to hope without negating that, yes, there are huge challenges. So one thing I've learned through my work in sexuality is there almost always is hope. So I asked our resident expert, Dr. Megan, to weigh in on some of the challenges, but more importantly, ways to navigate life and intimacy and experience the pleasure you deserve when you're dealing with PGAD, which I think also ties into other chronic pain disorders. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say. August, I just think it's fantastic that you're doing this episode today or talking on this episode about uh, persistent general arousal disorder, PGAD, because, you know, it's almost amazing to think that it actually hadn't appeared in sort of the medical literature until 2001 when Sandra Liebloom from UMDMJ first sort of described the symptoms. And then actually back then it was initially called... Um, which I'm sure you've already discussed, uh, persistent sexual arousal syndrome. And I think the important piece around the definition being changed is that initially that sense of arousal uh, historically has had a sexual connotation. And if there's anything anybody's taken away from this, because I think this is one of the biggest pain points of anybody seeking a treatment or experiencing this condition, is that there is nothing sexual or pleasurable about this experience. This is unwanted arousal. This is, you know, persistent sort of stimulation with complete absence of desire or pleasure. And, you know, it, you know, have to think of it, it's like tonight is sort of that ringing between your ears. If anybody's experienced that, it's sort of that incessant, irritating, unwanted sensation, the, sort of the itch you can't scratch. And I think the challenges amongst many are like any other chronic pain condition. Not only is it so challenging to get the diagnosis, um, and they've probably, anybody who's had these symptoms have seen many a specialist and probably tried uh, many different treatments. And I guess the thing is here to say is like, do not give up hope because since 2001, even though we're just into 2019, not only is the diagnosis, the name of the diagnosis itself changed, but I think that it's becoming unfortunate, very fortunately, right? They're more specialists, research and um you know, places to go so that when and if like any chronic pain condition, you're not feeling symptom relief. It's to recognize there are more treatments now available than ever. And in fact, in terms of PGAD, um, from initially having no identification of sort of what might the underlying conditions be, sort of neurological, uh, psychiatric, et cetera, there are now five spinal pathologies that have been identified. Um, the tar love cyst fluid-filled sac that's formed at the base of the spine, uh, being one of the most prevalent and seen about 67% of the women with PGAD. And so with all this, I just want to say that, um, you know, never before is there a time to have more hope and realize there's more options, again, not only in terms of knowing um, and being evaluated by specialists, but also in terms of the medications, injections, and for these five spinal pathology surgeries. Um, and, you know, in this question, I'm really speaking to the psychological aspects of dealing with PGAD and 
to be honest, any chronic pain syndrome, because honestly, you have to think out of the box and you really have to have a great and explicit communication with your partner, because I don't know, you don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes it's sort of chronic and unremitting. Sometimes it goes through um, phases of like windows of um, sort of absence of any symptoms. And then other times they're flare ups. And so you're really learning for yourself, you know, what are the conditions that impact your pain? Stress often being one of the ones that can certainly exacerbate. And I think that it's really about these conversations and learning for yourself. Um, you know, what are the conditions that give you sort of the optimal relief and what are the conditions most importantly that um, give you that sense of pleasure and connection with your partner because again as I often say we are wired for connection from the cradle to the grave and so again connection intimacy it's both mental and physical and in the context of PGAD or anyone with chronic pain syndrome or even like a vulvar vestibulitis or any other vulvar pain condition it really is about figuring out for yourself, you know, what still gives you pleasure, pleasure? Is it, you know, kissing, um, hand caressing, eye gazing, you know, what form of touch or connection can you consistently go to? I often speak to, right, the sense of a vanilla or chocolate ice cream, like what is on your menu and what, what, what's off your menu? What is it that you have to consistently negotiate with your partner where you are, what you're feeling right now in this moment is on or off the menu? But that sense of staying curious and knowing, of course, this is the thing I often say, anything that feels bad is never the last thing. So keep seeking, exploring, researching, discovering, figuring out, A, what gives you the most symptom relief, and also how do you then maximize the ways in which you are able to experience and feel pleasure, connection, and intimacy with your partner. As always, I hope we can continue this conversation and anybody who is experiencing PGAD um, would love always to hear how things are going. I love what she shared about the conditions that do give you a sense of pleasure and connection, that we are wired for connection from the cradle to the grave and figuring what that, like, what is that and then applying it to your life. And I think we all should be doing that. And it was interesting because even though I thought this question is not directly related uh, to your work, Aideen, then as we were speaking, I thought, wait a minute, it's completely related because you had emotional barriers and repercussions from abuse that were standing in the way of you being able to experience pleasure. Could you speak to that scenario and how you started to climb your way out of it? Yeah, so you know it's interesting because there's um, there's a tiny little divergent story in my personal story of sexuality, and um, for whatever reason, I must have been playing with myself from a pretty young age. I just remember I was taking a nap when I was eight years old, and I was playing with myself, and I caused myself to have an orgasm, and I remember. <laughs> At the simultaneously, like this, this ridiculous explosion and a sensation I had never had before, and was truly unaware that that was what was going to happen, and that's where I was headed, and that's what I was. So it, to me, it just felt like it came out of the blue, and simultaneously had two thoughts: What the hell was that? And how do I make it happen again? 
<laughs> Did you figure that out? Did you go, yes. oh? Yes. And so from then on, I was off to the races and yeah. I was masturbating like every day. I'm so grateful to hear that because with all you've gone through, yeah, that had to be such a beautiful practice to have. It was probably very private. You had to, you know, you yeah. probably had the sense you couldn't talk about it. But I wish that everyone had that. And to know that that's so normal and natural and wonderful for children to explore and to know their bodies. Yeah. That's so big. Well, and sadly, um, I mean, of course, I experienced the physiological benefits and positive things from the masturbating that I was doing. But psychologically, I didn't have that because that was right around the age that my parents joined the cult. And so that was when the purity conditioning or purity culture conditioning came in. And I don't remember when I was taught that masturbation was a sin and a perversion, but I remember being a preteen and already knowing that what I was doing was wrong and it was sinful and that God hated me for it. And so it started this torturous cycle for like a decade of my life where every night when I went to bed, I would masturbate and then I would ask for forgiveness. Aww. Like every night. But the strange thing was, so in the cult, everyone had what are what were, what we called pastoral leaders, which was like someone who was supposed to be more advanced in their devotion to God. And so and as a young girl, my pastoral leader would have been my mother. And so we had weekly meetings where we would sit down and she would ask me about my relationship with God and was I sinning and this and that. And I remember being 13 and just feeling so burdened, like I have to confess this horrible sin of masturbation. And the weirdest thing, so in my book, I compare my mother to Professor Trelawney, which is a Harry Potter character who is so completely useless and inept, except for those rare moments when she is just brilliant, like off the charts brilliant. And my mother was so like that. Like for, I, I, I look back and I think, yeah, you were like 99% useless in terms of mothering and all the rest of that. And she was very abusive too. But every once in a while, she would have the stroke of brilliance. So I finally get up the courage and I'm crying and she's thinking probably I murdered someone. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, mom, I've been masturbating. I've been touching myself and this and that. She did not shame me, right? Whoa. Yeah. All I remember, and there may have been more to the conversation, but all that I remember was that she she did affirm that I probably shouldn't be doing it and that it was a sin and that it, um, you know, still sex is only for marriage. But what she said to me, which I still remember to this day, and it just split my head open, and she said, well... When you get married, you will know, you'll be ahead of the game. You will know how to tell your husband how to please you. Wow. Which was so not a culty thing to say. It sounds like perhaps she learned that either the good way or the hard way. Yeah. And I, I've never, I never went back back and asked her about that. And she and I don't have a relationship right now. So, you know, like I... I have no idea really what was the deeper, what was going on in her mind and why Mm. she offered that perspective and that answer to me at that time. But I I can definitely say that made a huge difference, you know. Yeah, Yeah. that's a hugely important message. I'm really grateful she shared that. I think that's. 
that probably served you so well and still does, you know, through the dark times. Because you talk about feeling suicidal, Mm -hmm. um, helping other people then in the future from from that time. Through their times of that utter darkness, it gets so intense. When you were going through the divorce, you were starting to move on with your life and and understanding these are the facts as far as who my husband was is there had to be did you know that you were gonna have to do a lot of work around connection to your own pleasure did you feel like now I'm gonna go have my orgasms and I'm gonna find you know fun ways and I'm gonna find someone who maybe will appreciate me or or did that occur to you it sounds like there was so much um, almost brainwashing for a while Oh, yeah, for sure. But I would say I started unpacking all of that stuff the minute I left the cult. Now, (laughs) there unfortunately was like a semi truck full of stuff to unpack. (laughs) So it took me plenty of time. And I would say I'm still unpacking it, you know. Um, But I... (laughs) I think in my book, I said, I described it as like I'd been given this big giant bag of beliefs and I was walking down the road and I would pull one out and look at it and see whether or not it was actually my belief. And I think in my book, I said the first belief that I pulled out and I left was the belief in hell. That's not totally true. I just didn't have the guts to say the very first belief I pulled out was that masturbation was wrong. (laughs) I pulled that one out of the bag and I was like, this one has never fucking worked for me. Whatever, you know. (laughs) So I let that one go. And because my parents actually strangely did have a positive attitude about sex within the context of marriage. So I was never taught that sex was dirty. I was taught that it was sinful outside of marriage. And, of course, there were lots of sexual or expressions of sexuality that were besides the LGBTQ expressions. But um, like oral sex would have been a sin. Anal sex would have been a sin. All those things. So it was very tight. But um, I was like, ooh, when I got married, I was like, oh, oh, my God, I can finally have all the sex I want. And it's not a sin. And I have lots of sex. And then I was married to a gay man. <laughs> I was married to a gay man, which, you know, I mean, I know you talk about this all the time about uh, the spectrum of human sexuality. He falls very far on the one end of the spectrum. Just to illuminate that, when he was a teenager in high school and his buddies got a hold of a porno to watch and he saw a man having sex with a woman for the first time, he went to the bathroom and physically vomited. Wow. So I know it's, you know, not really politically correct to say someone is so gay, you know, like, you know, because as people say that flippantly, like, oh, he's so gay. I'm like, no, actually, he is very gay. When you're saying in a way that gay is awesome and he's so gay. Yeah. That's okay. Well, I'm just really just saying it in a matter of fact way. Totally. Totally. Like like you could say to me, you are very pale. (laughs) And that is just a fact. I would say fair and porcelain-like. There you go. I'll take that too. (laughs) And you have two daughters now. Yes. And I was really struck and continue to be struck by the ways that you are raising them to be more empowered in themselves and in their bodies and carrying on some of these positive messages you learned around sex, but also actual, you know, sexual experiences that maybe weren't allowed for you. You you don't want to prohibit them. No. And I also know that sometimes the application can be a little trickier, you know, when you've learned so much. Was it difficult to talk to your kids about sex or has it been? 
No, um, unfortunately, I am a TMI mama. <laughs> my, when my older daughter was in high school, you know, there were there were times when she was like, "Oh my God, Mom, please stop telling me everything," you know. But then when she went off to college and had a roommate um, who was so lacking in any knowledge about sex that it was almost as bad as she thought you could get pregnant from kissing. Like she was that ignorant. And my daughter came back to me and she said, you know, mom, yeah, it was awkward at times and it was embarrassing. And I wish you hadn't shared so much, but if you had to err on one side or the other, I'm so glad that you did do what you did. Even that she could say that to you speaks to how comfortable she knows she can say Yes. Thanks oh, to you. yeah, Any yeah, yeah. Kind of of topics. That's yeah. that's super important. What would you recommend to someone? Because I know you coach a lot of people. You're yeah. very involved in communities of people who went through or are going through experiences like you had. Yeah. What's some of the best advice that that you give, or that people most need to hear in these communities? Oh, that's a tricky one. For maybe we have a couple other days to talk. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe one of the yeah, top twenty. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I'll just start with uh, one of the things that straight spouses experience. We experience a nuance of sexual wounding that the general population isn't, wouldn't be aware of. And I'll speak to it from the position of being a straight spouse woman. Um, but so for us as women, our instead of our bodies being related to in much more of the usual way where a straight man just um, to one degree or another really just cherishes a woman's body and just thinks that once he has reached her pussy, he is literally at the gates of heaven. And just, you know, and I think that that, not to get woo-woo or anything like that, but I, I really, in my experience, that is an acknowledgement of the fact that if you have a uterus, that it creates human life. And that 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 is something, and again, and I'm not religious anymore at all, but in in the general sense of the word, that's very sacred, you know? Mm. And so, um, but we as women, as, as a uh, straight spouse woman, we don't have that experience. So not only is our, not only our, are our pussies not cherished and revered and, you know, uh, sought after, they are reviled. And um, I remember making my ex-husband say, when we were still married, I made him say the word pussy once. Because <laughs> he would never. He only used clinical terms. And I made him say pussy once, and he said, pussy. <laughs> and that's, but that's how he felt about it. You know, he yeah. told me that when he looked at my, as he would say, vagina, because he would never use the word pussy, uh, that he, saw, he only saw an undeveloped phallus. Wow, how Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so interesting because women learn far too often negative messaging about our bodies. And right. to have that kind of magnified in that yes. way and have it affirmed and validated almost where yeah. ideally you have a, a partner who will see beauty and sexiness in you and vice versa right. so that it helps with that, mm-hmm. you know, and it's yeah, to have it in validated. My, um, in my experiences with straight men, since I, you know, 
because I lost my virginity. And so my first experience was with a gay man, a closeted gay man, which because there's a big difference between an out gay man and a closeted gay man. Um, but anyway, that, I, that's a whole nother topic. A lot less authenticity. I mean, will we embrace yes. ourselves? A hundred percent. Yeah. The sec- oh, yeah. Uh, no matter what our gender orientation, yeah. that is such a bolster. If, if you're a sexual person, that's going to like skyrocket yeah not that the goal is to be turned on all the time but there's something about no, just to be the, aligned to be aligned that's the word yes. Yes. you know and people at one of the most common things people will say to me when after they've read my book or hear my experience they'll say oh I bet you have a good gaydar and I say actually I don't I don't have any more of a gaydar than the regular person what I do have a laser sharp lidar See, that is the difference, I think, too. That's such a poignant note about this because I have a friend who's in a relationship with an asexual woman. And they worked it out, and it's great. They love each other, and the asexual partner gives full permission to the other partner to be sexual with other people within the context of who they agree on and the kinds of things, you know, they have boundaries around it. Right. There's never been lying about it. Right. The abuse right. comes from the deceit, right? Yes. And imagine that in and of itself beyond sex, but all of it. Yeah. Yeah. The the abuse, if I could distill it down to one thing, the abuse was in him not acknowledging my humanity. He saw me as a means to his end. I was a solution to his quote-unquote problem. I wasn't a human being with full the full range of desires and needs and wants and dreams and hopes and, you know, unique wishes and all the rest of that. Um, and I, if I can really just generalize, I think to look at another human being and negate their humanity like that, I do think that that is evil. I do think that that because you are negating and denying and nullifying the sacredness of their humanity. And it's funny because I am I am not religious at all anymore from, you know, what I went through. Um, but I still find those words to be relevant. Very and, so. yeah. you know, and I oh, I always am extremely clear. It's very clear in my book. I'm extremely clear when I speak about it. He was born gay. And that is no more his fault, nor is there anything more wrong with that than me being born a redhead. Right. But he wasn't born a liar. Right. He that part that. was his choice. And he could choose to change or not. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's not the partner's responsibility to, to, quote, fix, right? No. And I do acknowledge and recognize that he was under a tremendous amount of pressure to make the choices that he did make. Yet. It doesn't make abuse okay. Yeah. He, he still is the one who made those choices. Mm-hmm. And I have had gay friends who were faced with the exact same quandary and did not, and they made a different choice. Mm. They made a choice not to use and abuse someone. Mm. So it, it really do, I, I do hold to, you know, accountability and, and responsibility. So, yeah. You know, your book to me reads very much like almost like a letter to somebody. Yeah. That's the vibe I got that yeah. you wanted to I almost could feel somebody like almost an imaginary person that you wanted to reach and maybe it's a broad yes. audience, but yeah. I felt like you were directly saying 
here's what I went through Mm -hmm. in a way that could shed light on really important themes and and learning moments for these people and for for therapeutic benefits. Why did you decide to write the book? Well, it's interesting because um, ever since I left the cult, even in my early 20s, when I people would hear that I was raising a cult, they would go, oh, my gosh, you sh- you've got to write your story. And I was like, oh, no way. <laughs> no, thank you. I have never been that classic writer who's filled journals and journals and journals and has been writing and making stories since I was five. Never. I am a speaker. I am verbose. <laughs> That, that makes sense then why it would, it would be as though... Very conversational. Yeah, yeah. it is. In a, it yeah. makes it very um, digestible in a way that somebody is telling you their story. I mean, yes. which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and knowing that you don't have... I mean, I like writer is my identity. Yeah. You know, like it's so... It's part of... I have to write every day, even if I weren't getting paid for it. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's not the only reason to write. Yeah. Another very important reason is because you have a story to tell and you know yeah. that you can help people. Well, and with that it. was the thing was that, you know, people would say, oh, you got to write your story. And then fast forward 20 years and I find out that my the man I'm married to is a closeted gay person. And then all my friends were like, OK, no, we're not kidding. You really got to write your story. <laughs> and I still didn't want to. But I had been helped along the way by other people who had shared there. They had shared the wisdom that they gained going through what they had gone through. And I thought, I have a responsibility to contribute just as much because what if those people had been like, yeah, I'm not feeling it, you know? And then my life would have been lacking that wisdom or that insight. And would it, could it have been the missing piece that tipped me into suicide? You know, and so I felt like and that's why. So the title, My Exquisite Purple Life, has a whole story behind it. And it's fun. It's beautiful and whatever. But the real crux of the book is in the subtitle, which is insights from a woman who never should have made it but did. And it wasn't until I felt like I could write my story with a higher goal and a higher purpose, more than just salacious gossip and shock value. You know, that's in there. That's undeniable. I was raised in a religious cult and then accidentally married to a closeted gay man. So there's it's there. But I needed it to have a higher purpose. And so when I realized that I could take the stories from my life and the experiences I'd gone through and say, I reached this conclusion or I gained this insight or this piece of wisdom because directly because of this experience that I had then and so the book is not a chronological I was born I grew up it's it's arranged topically around things like it wasn't my fault but it was my responsibility which is a chapter you know I may have been a slow learner but at least I wasn't a no learner you know another chapter and so all these different giant life lessons and giving it that way that was that was super duper important to me when i connected with that as the mission for the book whew, then i was off and running i was on fire so mm. yeah i did have one reader say to me about the conversa- conversational aspect of it she said i feel like i'm sitting and having coffee with you and i jokingly said yeah but a coffee that's like 10 hours and i do all the talking <laughs> That is a great blurb right there. (laughs) I love that so much. If somebody's listening and they are going through the darkness that you've experienced, what would you want to say to them? It's so cliche, but do not give up. Don't. 
I have it tattooed on my wrist, the quote from Winston Churchill, never, never, never give up. So here's some really cool math about life. Like if you could distill life to a formula, you only, it's, it's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get up. And guess what? You only have to get up one time more than you fall down. So you don't fall down 20 times and have to get up 50 times. You fall down 20 times, you only have to get up 21 times. And once you've fallen down 20 times, you've already gotten up 20 times, so you only have to get up one time more. Mm. And that, when I realized that, I was like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can always get up just one more time. I could not think about like, oh, do I have it in me to get up 30 more times? I'd tell you right now, probably not. Even today, even as happy and radiant as I am and as much as I've healed, I don't want to have to get up 30 more times. No, I don't want you to have no, to get up 30 more times. To, no, I think you've you gotten know. up plenty of times. Yeah. I really you know, do. But, but I know that if I fall again, that I only have to get up one more time. And then I win. And what are those rewards? What are the things that people look forward to? Well, if you are a straight spouse, one of the things that we say in our community is it gets better. And that is a tricky thing to hold on to or even believe. Or I, The first straight spouse that said that to me when I got connected and realized that this is what really what was going on, um, I actually I wasn't I was too polite to say it to her face, but I thought she was lying to me. Because you couldn't imagine it, right? No. No, I was like, either you're lying that you've ever been where I'm at or you're lying that it gets better because it does not. But it does. It does get better. And um, and it gets better by you getting up just one more time. Mm. Just, every single time, just one more time. That's it. Just one more time. And, um, yeah, that – it. it there, there's a lot of other things. I, guess. I, I really identify a lot with the warrior archetype. And so I have that, a lot of battle metaphors that I use with my clients. You carry you know. that too. I feel I it. I do, yes. Yeah. I am definitely the incarnation of a Viking shield maiden. Oh my gosh, sure. yes. 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 It blended with a Celtic warrior goddess. So Exactly. <laughs> we need to yeah. come up with your superhero yes. name. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's like I often will think, you're, you know, as I'm working with my clients, it's like, do you really want this? Do you really? And I will say they. Do you really want them to win? And I do not mean that in terms of an us and them with any LGBTQ community whatsoever. Because at, many people are surprised to hear the straight spouse community is huge supporters of the LGBTQ community. Because we can see a very direct correlation between the discrimination and abuse that they have suffered and the creation of our experience. Yeah. So we're extremely Without supportive. it, you wouldn't have gone through what you did. Right. Yeah. yeah. So when I say, do you want, do you really want them to win? It's just a generalized nebulous, like your whole life like and all your bad almost. experience. Yes, do you exactly. want the repression you want, to win? Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 And you have discovered this beautiful purpose. And yeah. I think that that is something that no matter where we are in our journey, Journeys, when we go through the really tough stuff, a lot of times we don't even fathom how incredible the rewards will be because yes. we can't imagine them. But it's not just getting, at least in my experience, I have found when you go through the hardest times, it's not about getting back up to like basal level okay. You actually can oh, springboard yeah. so much higher because oh, you've yeah. brought all that growth in and you've 
brought that bravery in and that vulnerability, and you just don't know what's waiting for you. That's so, so, so true. And I remember uh, probably a couple years after my divorce was finalized, I was talking with a friend from from decades ago from college and he was saying to me man you have just like made leaps and bounds and you're so unbelievably just in the last couple years and I said well the funny thing is I'm applying the same amount of effort right now that I have always been applying it's just that before I found the um, strength and the wisdom to leave my abusive marriage I was exerting such a huge effort, but it was like I had a hundred pound weight tied to each limb. So I was exerting a tremendous effort and just not nothing, none of it was showing. So then I get myself out of this daily, relentless, abusive situation and I'm applying the same amount of effort. I'm just now everyone can see it. And now I get to enjoy the the benefits of the work that I had been doing. So, yeah. I'm and so it, happy for you and also for it. the people that you're helping. It's yeah. so important. Would you share where people can learn more about you and buy My Exquisite Purple Life? Yes, absolutely. So uh, you can go to my website, which is com, and you can learn all about the work that I do there. I've got all my information about my coaching packages, my programs, pricing, everything is there. Um for my book, you can buy my book directly through, or not directly through my website, but there are links on my website for the book. It, you can go, you can, it's available in all three media. So it's in print, it's in e-reader, and it is on Audible. In your voice, which yes, I think makes yes. for a really lovely experience. Yeah. It's very personal. Yeah, that was very important to me because the main way that I consume books is through audio. And so it was very important to me to get it into audio. And I was super excited to read it myself. Same. Yeah. So I felt yeah. that way about mine. And then also, as I mentioned to you, I have a hard copy of your book. I've also been listening because yeah. it's there's something really powerful when you're telling your own story yeah. and you're the narrator. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly enough, and I'm, I'm guessing you had a similar experience when you were narrating your book. I kind of knew this was going to happen, but... When you hear my, in the audio version, when you hear my voice crack, that's because I actually was crying in the studio. Because, you know, to recount those stories and to relive some of those experiences, um, even though some of them are decades old, I just knew that, I knew that was going to come up. And I had mm-hmm. a wonderful director who was uh, directing the audio version. And the first time it happened, I just decided to go with it. And then, you know, we paused and it was, uh, okay, cut, take a breather, take a glass of water or whatever, drink. And I, I said, was that cheesy? And is that okay? And she goes, oh, that was amazing. I go, because I just knew that that emotion was going to come up. So And people will feel it. Yeah. And I think that realness, the authenticity that you have been cultivating and that you want in your life from other people, yes. it, yeah. it shows and it rings true. And I think people know that they can trust you, which is so important. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That That is a real treasure to me. You know, having been raised in an environment where I just really didn't feel like there was anyone I could trust, you know, because... Just the dynamic of a cult, there's so much backstabbing and everyone hates themselves. So, you know, so to to know now that I am in a place where I can be that for someone else, I can be the person that they trust and that they, especially when I'm coaching, mm. you know, I always tell my clients, and especially if it, it, once you read my story, you know, I like I this comes from total authenticity. I always tell my clients, you cannot shock me. 
<laughs> and you cannot get me not to see your potential. Like you can't convince me that there's something wrong with you. And I literally, I will, as long as you are not hurting children or animals, that's my only caveat, you know, like oh my gosh, as long as you're yes. not ch- hurting children or animals, you cannot say something that's going to shock me. And there's also not anything that I'm going to reject you for. And if you, you do, know? are hurting people, go get support. Right. But for most people, and this is my experience as well, they come to me with apologies about themselves oh, and, and feeling that there's something wrong with them. And yeah. in 100% of the cases, it's not true. No. And, you know, one of the very, very basic exercises that I do with my clients and I do, I have created online courses for straight spouses that are specifically geared towards healing and unpacking those very, very nuanced wounds from that experience. Uh, One is just a basic recovery course and the other one is specifically sexual recovery from a mixed orientation marriage. And um, one of the very first exercises that I do with them, which helps them to identify their inner critic is I will just repeatedly say to them, you are perfect, there is nothing wrong with you. You are perfect, there is nothing wrong with you. And then that helps to identify the messages that are often running there without our awareness. It doesn't mean they're not doing damage, but we're unaware of them, therefore they're going unchecked. Mm. And my, when I do this, so I'll say you, you're perfect, there's nothing wrong with you. And sometimes there's a pause. And I ask people to just write out what does their brain say, you know, in response to that. And sometimes there's a pause. And I'll go, it begins with, yeah, but. (laughs) And then they start writing furiously. You are perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. And your mind says, well, yeah, but let me tell you all the reasons why you're not perfect. Let me tell you everything that is wrong with you. Yeah. You know, so... So, yeah, and, and especially the, the huge one for uh, straight spouses is they need to undo the message that they were given that the, something was wrong with them for the physical body that they had and for the sex drive that this uh, – actually, I should say sexual orientation, their drive in connection with their orientation because hey. the gay spouse um, finds fault instead of being able to say – it's not you. It's that I don't like women or I don't like men. It's not you. It's me. They will say it in either verbally or nonverbally, they will say it's you. And that is what my ex-husband was saying to me when he said that my pussy was an undeveloped phallus. He was saying, you are flawed. Mm. You have an un instead of you have a pussy which is a thing in and of itself, which I then had to learn from other straight male lovers that I've had and relationships I've had, that my pussy is a real life thing. Like it's a legit thing. Fabulous. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I have had the most amazing, beautiful things that I've been able to receive from my, from straight male lovers, just saying literally your pussy is a thing of beauty. Like, I could look at your pussy all day long, you know. But so that's and, – and it happens to straight spouse men as well. They are villainized for their sex drive. They are made to feel predatory. They are made to feel like – unfortunately, even some of them are told that – they're told by their closeted lesbian wives that they feel like they're being raped when their husband is having sex with them, mm. you know. And so they get this – and they're so wronged and they're so made so wrong for um, just for being a man, just for having a dick. Yeah, which you is know? crazy. I mean, it sounds like 
When people are looking for the straight spouse support, they weren't just with a a gay or you know otherwise queer spouse. They were with an abusive spouse. Yes. And right? that's where I said, like a while back, I said to you, there is a difference between an out and it, they don't even need to be out publicly as long as they are integrated and aligned inside themselves. Because I feel like if you're going to share that, that's your own personal business. Like if my ex-husband had stayed in the closet his entire life, which unfortunately he's still in the closet, but um, if he had stayed in as long as he didn't hold anyone else hostage in the closet with him. Like, that's your business. You don't need to tell anybody. But if you could just be aligned inside yourself. Yeah. So there's a difference between that LGBTQ person and then the closeted LGBTQ person who is very um, misaligned mm-hmm. and self-loathing. And then they project that self-loathing in my ex-husband's case, it turned into severe misogyny. Yeah, which is so toxic and Ugh, so it hurtful. lucky to be on and, the end of that. Yeah, and increasingly, I know it's there's still a lot of pressure for, in, in certain communities especially, for people to stay in the closet. Oh, yeah. But thankfully, we do have more freedom. Yeah. All people do. So, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, there were people who, you know, they – maybe knew that they were gay, but they also never learned that that was okay. And now right. there's a whole world out there. So if anyone's listening and they are in the closet to know, you might feel oh, like there's yeah. something wrong with you, but there's not. No, there's no, you are perfect. There's nothing You're wrong perfect. with you. You're perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. You are yes. perfect. There is nothing wrong with you. Uh, which is such a beautiful message. And I mm-hmm. feel that is a wonderful message to leave our listeners with. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today and for oh, the work that you, you do, Adine. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or iHeartRadio, whatever is your favorite podcast app. And please leave us a rating and simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin with technical producer and audio extraordinaire Mackenzie Mazel as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.